Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We're beginning a wrap-up of the first major section of the Book of Alma. It includes Mormon's first three original chapters, and that recounts the first nine years of the reign of the judges, including the Amlicite Rebellion and the aftermath. The church at this point is in crisis. Mormon calls it a great stumbling block, and while there are still some humble followers of Christ, There are some in the church who are beginning to live like Amlicites, focusing on vanity and creating inequality. Alma's response to all of this is to stop trying to split his time between the government and the church. He turns over his judgment seat to a man named Nephiha, who must have been a pretty solid guy, and dedicates his time to the ministry. It's clear that Mormon intends for this to be the beginning of a new section. He even adds a heading, the words which Alma, the high priest, according to the holy order of God, delivered to the people in their cities and villages throughout the land. Alma will preach in the cities of Zarahemla, Gideon, Melech, and Ammonihah, and he will build a church in Sidon. Of those five cities, we get sermons from three of them. Apart from Jesus Christ himself, Alma is the source of most of the theological sermons of the Book of Mormon. While Mormon may have had some hand in editing these sermons, they are in Alma's voice and not in Mormon's usual style of abridgment. This is where they begin. Getting into Alma 5, verses 1 through 25, Alma is beginning his ministry to the church in the capital city of Zarahemla. Zarahemla is the seat of power, and we can imagine the members of the church there being wealthier, more influential, and perhaps entitled. One of the unique features about the Zarahemla sermon is that it contains upwards of 50 questions, suggesting that Alma doesn't think the church in Zarahemla lacks understanding. They don't need more knowledge. Rather, what they lack is self-awareness and the ability to accurately measure their life against what they profess they believe. Right away, we see that Alma is not a dispassionate speaker He's not a highbrow theologian holding the gospel at arm's length. The gospel is a story, and it's the most personal story that he could tell. In verses 1 through 5, Alma very briefly recounts the story of the church from the waters of Mormon down through the time in Helam and the exodus to Zarahemla. And then he asked them his first few questions. Have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Yea, and have you sufficiently retained in remembrance his mercy and long-suffering toward them? And moreover, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance that he has delivered their souls from hell? Why is Alma's first move to remind the church of the captivity of their fathers? Could it be that it's because that's exactly what the angel did to Alma and the sons of Mosiah? Remember this from Mosiah 27? Now I say unto thee, Go and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Helam and in the land of Nephi, and remember how great things the Lord has done for them. For they were in bondage, and he has delivered them. Like I said, this is the most personal story that Alma could tell, taken from what is likely the most sacred experience of his life. 
something that he refers to again and again. One thing that you'll hear from me as we read through the book of Alma together is that I see Alma as basically delivering the same few messages in each of his sermons. They're grounded in his experience, in his father's experience, in the words of the angel, Abinadi, and Benjamin. Everything that follows here in Alma's description of the early founding and liberation of the church could just as easily be a description of his own conversion. He says that God changed their hearts, woke the people up out of a deep sleep, brought them from darkness to the light of the everlasting word, snatched them from the bands of death, chains of hell, and everlasting destruction, expanded their souls, which enabled them to sing redeeming love. Alma is talking about the early church, but he's doing it in the language that he uses to describe his own conversion, especially in Alma 36. I think most people who have felt redemption come through the grace of Jesus Christ could use similar language to describe their experience. But people have a tendency to forget, similar to the way that the people of Zarahemla have begun to forget. Remembering the captivity and the liberation of our spiritual ancestors is a good way to remind ourselves of our own liberation through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what Passover is. It's a liberation festival. That's what the sacrament is. It's a way of remembering our captivity and liberation and having that liberation renewed. The angel wanted Alma to remember, and Alma wants his people to remember and to be renewed, and to do that, he goes back to the beginning. For Alma, this all started with his father hearing Abinadi deliver the word of God to King Noah and his priests. And right here, we're going to get the first example from Alma of a pattern that he will teach about again and again, and it's all about the word. Here are Alma's words in verses 11 through 13. Behold, I can tell you, did not my father Alma believe in the words which were delivered by the mouth of Abinadi? And was he not a holy prophet? Did he not speak the words of God, and my father Alma believed them? And according to his faith, there was a mighty change wrought in his heart. Behold, I say unto you that this is all true. And behold, he preached the word unto your fathers, and a mighty change was wrought in their hearts. And they humbled themselves and put their trust in the true and living God. And behold, they were faithful until the end. Therefore, they were saved. This is the same pattern that we're going to see again and again. Alma 32, for example, but in its simplest form. The word of God is delivered, usually by a messenger, sometimes an angelic messenger. And that word isn't just content. Earlier, he described the effects of the everlasting word as illuminating, so powerful that it can bring light where there's only been darkness. The word isn't just words, plural. The word is a vehicle of grace. When the word is delivered, the hearer of the word needs to accept it, believe it, have faith in it, and practice humility. Passive reception and acceptance isn't enough. The word demands a response from us. And how we respond will play a significant role in the power the word has in our life. Consider the examples of Alma and the priests of Noah. To Alma, Abinadi was the messenger of God. To the other priests of Noah, Abinadi was a threat to their power and he deserved to die. Same messenger, same message, vastly different experiences. When we respond to the word with faith, it goes to work in changing our hearts. The heart in today's society tends to symbolize emotion. However, in the ancient world, the heart was the center of a person's identity. A change of heart is a change in the deepest sense 
of how we see ourselves and how we see the world. There's a reason Benjamin describes it as being born anew. Amo will return to the concept of the word again and again, so we'll have further opportunities to try and get at what he actually means. But the two things I think we should remember at this point is that the word is much more than anything that can be spoken or read, and that the process he's describing here is one of complete transformation, and not just a person becoming convinced of a new belief. In verses 14 through 30, we get Alma's barrage of questions. And we're going to take a broad view of this whole section instead of just going question by question. But I think that there's a discernible arc to all of these questions. It will help to try and get a firm grasp of what Alma thinks the problem is in the church in Zarahemla. What problems are all of these questions trying to address? More than that, we already know that Alma believes in the power of the word to transform and not just to convince so these questions are meant to provoke a transformation. First, from verse 14, we see that Alma is addressing male members of the church in Zarahemla. Second, we already know from chapter 4 how Alma perceives the problem. The conduct and culture of these men in the church are particularly damaging to people who aren't members of the church, leading them from one piece of iniquity to the other. The sense here is that in this post-Amlicite Nephite nation, the church is looked at as a moral leader. It was a problem for the Amlicites to behave the way that they did, but when the culture of the church begins to look like the Amlicites, it's even more destructive. Central to this destructive church culture is the issue of inequality, resulting from the pride and elitism of these men in the church. This isn't just an issue of cliques forming in the community. This has a real cost in people's lives, particularly the poor, the naked, the hungry, the sick, and afflicted. If King Benjamin's speech is any indication of what could be considered a Nephite ethic of wealth, then wealth puts you under obligation to succor those who stand in need of succor, and in part of the substance to one another. This wasn't just a positive ethic. Benjamin says that if Nephites judge the man who putteth up his petition to you for your substance that he perish not, and condemn him, how much more just will your condemnation be for withholding your substance, which doth not belong to you but to God, to whom also your life belongeth. And yet ye put up no petition, nor repent of the things which thou hast done. I say unto you, Woe be unto that man, for his substance shall perish with him. And now I say these things unto those who are rich pertaining to the things of this world. So for Benjamin and Alma, there's no your wealth. You get to do what you want with it. There's a social contract. And even more than that, there's a covenant obligation as a member of the church. Getting back to chapter 5 in verses 26 through 32, Alma makes clear that this is the problem that he's using the word to address. He asks them, are you sufficiently humble? Are you stripped of pride? Are you stripped of envy? Do you mock or persecute your brother? What's striking about all of this is Alma's urgency. For Alma, this isn't just a problem for the afterlife. This is here and now. Woe unto such an one, for he is not prepared, and the time is at hand, and that he must repent or he cannot be saved. What's behind Alma's urgency? Again, I think it's his own experience. He knows what it is for the veil to be immediately removed and to experience himself as he really is rather than his understanding of himself 
being filtered through justifications, prejudice, and biases. These justifications, prejudices, and biases are kind of like pacifiers. Think of what the purpose of a pacifier is. It's to soothe in order to quiet. Often, instead of walking around feeling the immediacy of our imperfections, we reach for pacifiers and distractions, anything to take our mind off of that nagging feeling. Sometimes even the feeling of being imperfect can serve as a spiritual pacifier. Guilt has a function, but the moment it becomes an obstacle to our repentance, it isn't that godly sorrow that we sometimes talk about. It's a specter, something that we treat as genuine and authentic, but which is unable to connect us back to reality. Rather than feeding the pacifying false self-images of the elite of the church in Zarahemla, Alma is trying to knock them off balance in the hopes of being able to help them regain real balance. Real peace, real balance can be achieved, but it can't be found in pride, which is simply a counterfeit for love. The people have to go to the source. In the book of John, Jesus says that he came to bring life and to bring it in abundance. That's where Alma is going to take his listeners, to the source of the abundant life. Behold, he says, he sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them. And he said, Repent, and I will receive you. Yea, he saith, Come unto me, and ye shall partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Yea, ye shall eat and drink of the bread and the waters of life freely. These are potent symbols that Alma is drawing on. You can just imagine him with Lehi or Nephi's writings open in front of him. What is the fruit of the tree of life? It should be so obvious to us. What is the fruit of an apple tree? It's an apple, right? What's the fruit of the tree of life? It's life, true life, real life, abundant life. The Costa Ricans have a saying, pura vida. It means pure life. Not a life that is pure, but life through and through. Alma is saying, what you guys have been living isn't life. But life is exactly what is being offered to you by the Lord. And if you don't choose life, the other option is death. This might be a little confusing through here. How can you live something that isn't life? How can you be alive but be choosing death? Well, Alma gives us different ways to think about the same choice. On the one hand, you have life and its synonyms. Life is love. Remember, that's what Nephi is told the fruit stands for. Life is righteousness. Life is joy. Life is the humble devotion of a sheep to its shepherd. The other option is death. Death is mourning. Death is sorrow. Death is pride. Alma then moves to compare the people to sheep. But what Alma focuses on may reveal some difference between today's popular culture and what Alma wants his people to understand. In today's discourse, if you are a sheep, you're blindly following the crowd. And, and that's pretty revealing of our ethic of individualism in the modern West. But Alma wants to focus less on the influence of the crowd and more on the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. He doesn't necessarily value individuality. He values faithfulness. Bob Dylan has a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. Dylan's point is similar to what Alma's point is going to be here and can be summed up in the lyric, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. 
That's a little offensive to the idea that we are first and foremost individuals. But the question that Alma's asking isn't, are you sheep? It's, whose sheep are you? A shepherd hath called after you, he says. The good shepherd doth call you. Yea, and in his own name he doth call you, which is the name of Christ. And if ye will not hearken unto the voice of the good shepherd, to the name by which ye are called, behold, ye are not the sheep of the good shepherd. The Lord is often compared to a shepherd in the Old Testament, but the closest thing that we get to Alma's use of that metaphor up until this point in the Book of Mormon is from Nephi, who, because of his vision, calls Jesus both the Lamb of God and the shepherd. And these two names indicate different parts of the role of the Messiah. As the Lamb of God, Jesus sacrifices himself. As the shepherd, Jesus' sacrifice gathers all people into one family. For there is one God and one shepherd over all the earth. We get the same self-sacrificing image of the good shepherd from Jesus himself in John 10. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. So Alma's message is that the good shepherd is trying to gather the people and heal them. Recognizing that you are sheep in need of a good shepherd is the same as recognizing that we're all beggars in need of a Messiah. He's asking the people to not think of themselves as pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. He wants his people to realize that they are sheep who are dependent on a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are directionless and defenseless. They're basically a walking buffet. But Alma isn't offering much of a middle ground to his listeners. If they don't listen to the voice of the good shepherd, like Dylan said, they have chosen to follow another shepherd, the devil. There's an entire episode to be made about what the Book of Mormon says and doesn't say about the devil, but we'll have to leave that for another time. Getting back to Alma, how do you know if someone is following God versus following the devil? You look at their works. Good things come from following God, and evil things come from following the devil. Now to be clear, Alma isn't preaching a prosperity gospel, where following God is the secret to health and wealth. We've already seen examples in the Book of Mormon of righteous people who suffer, and wicked people who seem to enjoy all kinds of worldly privileges. In fact, Alma might very well say, given the fact that his audience is primarily the wealthy elite of the church in Zarahemla, don't mistake wealth for goodness or suffering for evil. Returning to the theme of life, following the voice of the good shepherd is partaking of the fruit of the tree of life, the waters of life, the bread of life. These are all talking about the same thing. Following the devil is a different story. Whosoever bringeth forth evil works, the same becometh a child of the devil. For he hearkeneth unto his voice, and doth follow him. And whosoever doeth this must receive his wages of him. Therefore, for his wages he receiveth death, as to the things pertaining unto righteousness, being dead unto all good works. Moving on to verses 43 through 49, Alma continues to draw on Nephi here, saying, I speak in the energy of my soul. For behold, I have spoken unto you that ye cannot err, or have spoken according to the commandments of God. For I am called to speak after this manner, according to the holy order of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Yea, I am commanded to stand and testify unto this people of the things which have been spoken of by our fathers concerning the things which are to come. I'm convinced that one of Alma's favorite pieces of writing is 2 Nephi 25. Alma has the same urgency that Nephi has, and like Nephi, emphasizes that he's putting this as plainly as possible. We sometimes mistake scripture for a bunch of opaque theology. 
There are a lot of contributing factors to this understanding. These writings are from a different time, a different place, a different people. They've been transcribed and translated sometimes many times. They're, they're often rendered in archaic forms of English, like the King James Version of the Bible. And they use words that have become loaded with religious meaning over thousands of years. Words like faith, salvation, testimony, Christ, worship, etc., all of this can work together to make the scriptures feel like they don't really have much to do with us, and that they are more of a permanent inscription than a living document. To put it bluntly, we have a real problem with scripture, and this problem is a particular challenge in today's world where religious belief is more optional than ever. It's not uncommon for the scriptures to be seen as books of superstition from uneducated ancient people. I want to offer this part of Alma 5 up as a challenge to that view of scripture. And I'm going to do it by paraphrasing a large chunk of the chapter. In other words, I'm going to do my best to put Alma's words in modern language. And what I hope comes across crystal clear is that Alma isn't giving a theological treatise here to a bunch of eggheads. He's speaking to real people who have real problems. I might take some liberties but I'm going to try and keep the spirit of what he's saying. He's trying to be as blunt and as persuasive as he can. So here goes the paraphrase, starting in Alma chapter 5, verse 43. I beg you to listen to me. I've tried to give you God's message as simply as I possibly can. That's my job. I'm the one who's responsible for helping you to understand what our fathers foretold would happen to us. I lose sleep trying to figure out how to help you feel the urgency that I feel. And look, it's not just my job. Do you really think that I don't believe what I'm saying? It's one thing to think that maybe Alma believes, but I'm not going to believe myself. That's not what I'm asking. Do you think that I'm lying? It's the difference between saying, I don't believe, but I think you believe versus I believe that you don't believe and are lying. And I'll put it bluntly, I know that I've told the truth. How do you think I came to this point? I'll tell you, I've put in the time. I've fasted and prayed for more days than I can count so that I wouldn't have to just trust somebody else's experience. Now, nobody can tell me that the Spirit of God hasn't shown me the truth. Nobody can tell me that I don't know how to obtain answers for my questions. The same thing that enabled our fathers to prophesy of the coming of Jesus Christ, the same spirit of prophecy, I have it too. I know as well as Nephi that Jesus Christ will come. He's the Messiah, full of grace and truth. And what does that mean exactly? It means the thing that our people have resisted over and over again the idea that God himself will come down and dwell in the flesh, be born, grow, live, teach, sacrifice, and resurrect, and that in him all of heaven and earth will be joined, that's what being full of grace and truth means. The gift of grace from heaven and the hard truths of the earth all in one person. I know he's coming. He's the only one who can heal us from sin and death. This is my job. I'm the messenger on the mountain telling you that God is on his way. Not just to you, but to everyone I can reach. Old, young, bond free. It doesn't matter who this world says you are. You must repent and let him make you a new creature. 
That's what I mean by life. Okay, like I said, I took a few liberties, but I hope that helped to get the feel of Alma's urgency. Since Alma is one of our main sources of theology in the Book of Mormon, we should actively remind ourselves that like Paul, this guy is first and foremost a minister who teaches real people. He's not an armchair theologian. He's all up in people's lives, and he has a real vocation that motivates him to engage people in spite of all the challenges and discomforts that he'll face along the way. Alma moves on in verses 50 through 52 to a kind of transition section of this discourse. He just shared his own witness of the things that he's been teaching, and now he's going to add another witness, that of the Spirit. He's actually going to quote the Spirit, which is kind of a unique thing. Can you imagine someone standing up in sacrament meeting and quoting the Spirit? The Spirit has some familiar things to say here. The kingdom of heaven is coming soon. The time for repentance is now. The Messiah is the king of earth and the king of heaven. That's the grace and truth idea. This is no small event that the Spirit is describing. This is bringing together all things in one, the at one No wonder why Alma says, The Spirit saith unto me, yea, crieth unto me with a mighty voice, saying, Go forth and say unto this people, Repent, for except ye repent, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of heaven. Knowing what we know about Jesus' life in Palestine, his visit to the Nephites and the effects of both, we can kind of reverse engineer what the Spirit means by the kingdom of heaven and preparing for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus as king of both earth and heaven is enthroned at the very least through his resurrection. But consider what really changes because of his resurrection. Evil still exists in the world. The church among the Nephites and Lamanites does experience a blessed period, but then everything falls apart. This unravels even quicker in the church in the Roman Empire. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the king of heaven and earth? Paul, I think, gets the kingdom-building project about as well as anyone. His experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus really flips his world upside down. He realizes that the Messiah isn't just Israel's king. He's the king of the whole world. And while Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans like they had anticipated the Messiah would, he did something even greater. The Messiah overthrew sin and death, both of which held the entire world captive. So Paul takes his insights and spends the rest of his life going back through the Hebrew Bible, reading with this new understanding, and he comes to believe that the whole project is about creating a multinational, multi-ethnic kingdom of people who believe in the saving power of the weak, crucified Messiah. Paul spends his life living in the kingdom, serving the king, but his life is filled with sorrow and suffering. It's a different type of kingdom than we normally think of. It's a kingdom of weak power. Alma then quotes the Spirit saying something that we only hear one other time, and that's from John the Baptist. The Spirit says, Behold, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that bringeth not forth, therefore, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. Yea, a fire which cannot be consumed, even an unquenchable fire. John is speaking to the Jewish 
elite of his day who are hiding behind their chosen lineage as children of Abraham. And his message is, that won't save you from the Romans who are going to lay waste to this land. The spirit, in Alma's context, may be referring to all kinds of destruction that the Nephites are going to be experiencing leading up to the coming of Christ. But knowing what we know about the pride and self-importance of the church in Zarahemla, the message that Alma's delivering is pretty similar to the message that John delivers. There's no hiding behind your chosenness. Life doesn't come from your pride. It comes from your following of the Savior. In verses 53 through 56, Alma returns to his method of flooding his audience with introspective questions. These questions are challenging and provocative. You could easily imagine a modern leader taking this approach and getting tons of pushback, but all of his questions really come back to their baptismal covenants that they've already made. Now in this next section, I'm going to be porting in the baptismal covenants that the members of the church in Zarahemla have already made, but I'm going to be putting them right up against the questions that Alma is asking them. For example, Will they live up to their covenant to come into the fold of God and be called his people? Or will they trample God under their feet? Will they bear one another's burdens? Or will they be puffed up in pride and walk around in the trappings of wealth and vanity? Will they mourn with those that mourn? Or will they suppose they are better than one another? Will they comfort those who stand in need of comfort? Or will they persecute the humble? Will they be evidence for the power of a self-sacrificing God in the lives of others? Or will they turn their backs on the poor and the needy? One of the worst things that we can do to the Word of God is turn it into a series of platitudes that become so generalized and so vague that they only have meaning to us when it suits us. Alma's not doing that. Alma is drawing this stark contrast between real behaviors that he sees in the lives of people in his audience, and the covenants that they've made. And this isn't a toothless recommendation. He finishes his questions with this statement grounded in the words of the Spirit that he quoted earlier. And finally, all ye that will persist in your wickedness, I say unto you that these are they who shall be hewn down and cast into the fire, except they speedily repent. He's almost saying, Just in case you missed it the first time, I'm going to tell you one more time what this is all leading to. Alma wraps up his sermon in verses 57 through 61. Years earlier, the church faced an existential threat under Alma's father. You might remember Alma the Younger and King Mosiah didn't quite know how to respond to the destructive behavior of certain members of the church. This is back in Mosiah 26. Well, the Lord gave Alma the Elder a revelation on how to deal with that problem, and Alma the Younger seems to be drawing heavily on that revelation throughout this sermon, and certainly here in these final verses. He gives the members of the church in Zarahemla the option of having their names blotted out from the church, or following the Good Shepherd and turning back toward their covenants of caring for one another. Alma gives them an ultimatum. He equates what he's doing to a shepherd watching over the flock. It wouldn't do to knowingly let wolves devour the sheep of the good shepherd. He says he speaks by way of commandment to the church. They've already made a covenant to consecrate after all. 
an invitation to those who aren't yet a part of the church, and he wants everyone to listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd join his fold and partake of his life. Moments like these can seem abrasive to our modern sensibilities for all kinds of reasons. It's becoming less and less popular to draw hard and fast lines. Actually, scratch that. People are more than happy calling those who they don't agree with evil and making excuses for those who they see as part of their group. But Alma's talking to members of the church. That's his group. It's political suicide to stand up to those who you are supposed to be leading and call them out for their persecution of others. You're supposed to flatter your followers, right? And call out those who oppose you. Well, these aren't Alma's followers. They're supposed to be following the good shepherd. And his flock operates by a different logic. Being numbered among his flock isn't about what tribe you belong to. It's about humbling yourself, hearing his voice, and caring for others. Calling yourself a Christian doesn't cut it. We have to become vehicles of grace and produce fruit. Otherwise, we are left to the consequences of mortality. There are some profound lessons in here for our day. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.